since we've been off for a week, more for my uh, benefit than for yours, just a little bit of a review. We in, earlier in this chapter looked at the thousand year reign of Christ upon the earth, how it is that Satan was bound for that thousand years but then loosed at the end of it. Uh, he leads a final uh, rebellion against uh, God. Uh, that rebellion is uh, readily and easily put down by God. Satan is then uh, bound and cast into the eternal lake of fire where the uh, Antichrist and the false prophet have already been uh, for a thousand uh, years. And now we pick it up in verse 11. And then I saw a great throne, John says, and him who sat on it, a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one according to the, his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So John now sees in the heavenly scene a single great white throne that dominates everyone's uh, attention. It is a great throne because from that throne eternal uh, sentence is going to be meted out uh, by the one who sits on it. It is a white throne, not a dark throne, not a red throne. It is a white throne because that speaks of the purity and the holiness of the one who sits upon that throne and the purity and the holiness of the judgments however severe they may seem to man uh, that are meted out uh, from that throne in verse 11 we're given there the description of the one who sat upon the throne who sits on it in this future event uh, it's uh, him is in capital letters it refers to the Lord and uh, so who from whose face the earth and the heavens fled uh, away and so this judgment is going to be as we'll see in a moment the final judgment of the wicked and uh, following this white throne judgment uh, the heavens and the earth are disappearing and a new heavens and a new earth is, uh, is created. It is Jesus who sits on the throne. Uh, Jesus declared in John chapter 5 verse 22 in his public ministry, For the Father judges no one. He has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Notice in verse 12 who it is that stands before uh, the Lord here uh, at this throne and at this judgment. John sees the dead. He sees the dead both small and great. And this throng of people that uh, await to be judged before the white throne is refers to all of humanity that has uh, uh, ever lived, that has rejected Christ throughout all of uh, the ages. God is no respecter of persons. He is no respecter of persons when he saves. He will save anyone. 
that will believe in his son for the forgiveness of their sins and for eternal life, salvation, to become a new creation. He never turns anyone away. Isn't that wonderful? In human history, there's never been one sinner, no matter how heinous their sins, whether they've sinned enough for a hundred people, when they have repented of their sins and turned to the Lord and trust in His Son for forgiveness, He never turns away a single one, or, nor is their portion in terms of what they receive from Christ in this life and of the life to come. It is not less than the person who was a relatively good person, though still a sinner, all the days of their life. He's no respecter of persons in His salvation, but He is no respect of persons either in His judgment. To stand before Jesus at the white throne judgment, there is only one sentence that is meted out there, and that is eternal judgment. No Christian will stand before Jesus at this uh, white throne uh, judgment. Jesus has borne our sin and uh, forgiven us of our, our sins. And uh, so here, uh, here is this group stands there, both small and great. We live in a country that is a country that works pretty hard at uh, trying to uh, have uh, justice for uh, everyone. Uh, whether they're rich or poor, uh, powerful or powerless, uh, and, and there are governments, of course, around the world that are uh, very, very much more corrupt than, than our government is, where money and power and position can you, buy you out of, of any kind of guilt in your life. At this white throne judgment, doesn't matter whether a person's been a king or whether they've been a pauper, whether they've uh, powerful or powerless, nothing matters in the way that people use power and money to tweak the legal systems of the world and to get out from under the judgment that they are due. No one will, will hinder this justice and this judgment at all. Everyone will be treated the same. He is no respecter of persons, uh, even in his, his judgment. The Bible teaches, Philippians chapter 2, that every single human being is one day going to stand before Jesus. That is not an if, that is a win for every single person. The issue is not whether we are going to stand before Him, uh, every one of us. The issue is uh, what will be our relationship to Him when we do. Will it be that we will stand before Him on that glassy sea and worship Him and praise Him as our Savior and as our Lord and take that crown and cast it before Him? Or will I stand before Him having rejected Him all of my life before the great white throne judgment? Everybody stands before Him. Everyone ultimately confesses Him as Lord of the universe. But some will do it unto salvation. Others will do it unto uh, their Damnation. You notice in verse 12 that we're told that the books were open. And notice that word, and books were opened, is plural. And then he goes on to say, and another book, singular, was opened, which is the book of life. Then at the end of, of verse 12, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books, plural. So we've got two things happening here. Uh, kind of two stacks that are there in, in heaven at the time of this white throne 
judgment. There is some series of books, some collection of books uh, in, in one kind of heap or place. I'm sure it's not in a heap. Uh, up there in heaven, they are there in place. And then, and then uh, distinct from these books is another book, a single book, a lone book, that is called the, 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 the book of, of life. The dead were told in verses 12 and 13 that stand before Jesus at the white throne judgment are judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Whatever this uh, series of books, plural, are, uh, one thing that we do know about them is that they condemn those at the white throne judgment as sinners. We know that much about them. We don't know everything about them, but we know that much about them. Now these books could refer to uh, the Law of Moses, the first five books of, uh, of, of the Old Testament. The Law of Moses, the Bible teaches, exposes every single human being in this world to be a sinner and thus in need of a Savior. Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 3 and he said, For by the law is the knowledge of sin. When a person reads through the law of the Old Testament, the law is like a plumb line. It, it's a, just a perfectly straight line. And, and God's, what God's law is, is so righteous, so perfect, so true, that you could take then anything else in the world, any human life that you would put up against the purity of that plumb line of the law of Moses, and it would expose us as crooked. It would expose us as being less than pure, less than holy, less than straight, less than right. It would expose us as sinners. And that was the purpose given behind uh, the law of Moses. And to be exposed as a sinner by the law of Moses simply verifies God's assessment of every human being in the world, and that is that every one of us has sin. And the consequence of our sin is that we have fallen short of the glory of God. We are not worthy of a relationship with God because of our sin. We are not worthy of an eternity in heaven because of our sin. So the law of Moses teaches us the seriousness of sin and the crookedness of our life and of our need for forgiveness and, and for a, a, a Savior. Now, most people in, in the United States of America, you, they always do those polls, you know, uh, and how many people are Christians or claim to be Christians? You know, it's always like 80%. And how many people are going to, you know, think they're going to heaven? And like 95%. <laughs> You'd never know it in the culture, would you? It's fabulous to be in a Christian nation. But anyway, you know, they do this thing, and how many of this, and you're going to heaven and all. But, but people in general believe that uh, they get into heaven on the basis of being just slightly slightly better than their neighbors. And uh, so compared to the rest of my family, oy vey, you know, and, and to, to my neighbors or the people in school or whatever, I'm, I'm on my way into heaven. And, and the idea is, in the culture, is that this thing is graded on a curve. I just have to be a seer above. And, uh, and somehow you get in because you're not as bad as, as everybody else. So we believe that the standard, the right standing that God accepts for heaven is just slightly better than everyone else. But that's not the standard. 
The Bible teaches that the standard is perfection. One needs a perfect righteousness to enter into heaven. And that's why when we trusted in Jesus as our Savior, the Bible says that a wonderful accounting transaction took place in heaven where the perfect right onness or righteousness of Jesus was put to our account, making us acceptable in heaven. It's all because of Him and not because of us being good enough uh, for it. So when a person thinks that, well, you know, I'm going to get into heaven on the basis of being slightly better than my co-workers or something like that, they just look and, I mean, they're very confident about eternity. Give me, God, give me what I deserve. I've been better. They have no idea what they're saying. We don't want what we deserve. What we deserve is, is uh, judgment and what we want from God is, is His mercy. Now, it is also possible that these books are a written record of each person's life. Now, uh, today, what do we have? Uh, we have tape recorders. We have cassette tapes. We have DVDs. We have uh, video recorders. I mean, we have a lot of different ways to record history, don't we? Or to record a human life. They didn't have those things 2,000 years ago. So how would you record a person's history? You would record it by writing it in a book. And so there are many that believe that this series of books is a history of any single individual human being who would then cry out before the white throne judgment and claim this to be an unfair judgment. They're worthy of heaven. They're no kind of a sinner or anything like that. And uh, all God has to do is say, uh, read the book. Uh, open it up, uh, Joe Schmo from Kokomo, and uh, th- let me re- just start reading until he stops you. Because anyone in their right mind is going to stop another person from reading an open account of their life. It would be like God saying, all right, he, th- he, he doesn't accept the fact that he's a sinner. Play the video. Now, who would want a video play to their life to confirm that, that we are a sinner? And, and to silence us from squawking before the white throne, throne judgment. Now, the beautiful thing about the, uh, our lives and our names being found in the book of life is that in the book of life, all that's recorded is our name. No history. Just our name. Nothing else is going to trail with us into heaven. Nothing of what we were, nothing of what we've been or done. None of a remembrance of that. None of that will be what we are known for. Only our name. And then who we are in Christ enters into heaven. There is no history associated with the book of life. Only the evidence that we have put our faith in in Christ. Now... The book of life uh, could, uh, or the, these uh, books, uh, can also uh, refer to uh, the, not only the judgment of the wicked, uh, but they can also be something that is used to uh, determine the degree of punishment for the wicked in eternity. The Bible teaches that as Christians, there will be an eternal reward associated with our faithfulness to what God has called us to be and to do as Christians. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will declare it, the day of judgment, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work with which he has built on it endures, he'll receive a reward for it. If anyone's work is burned, then he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Every Christian gets into heaven, but uh, the testing of our faithfulness and of our service to the Lord will determine uh, eternal reward. What that looks like and all, I don't know. I just know that I serve the Lord not because, wow, where do you see the crown? I, I serve the Lord simply because it pleases Him. That's what He wants us to do. That's what we do. And then whatever it is in eternity, that's fine. I'm glad I'm getting into heaven. That's all I know. But, but in the same way that there will be different degrees of reward in eternity, there will also be different degrees of eternal punishment for the wicked based upon their wickedness. Jesus spoke this in Matthew chapter 11 when he was upbraiding the cities where he had done most of his mighty works because they did not repent. And he said, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who were exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Then notice, he declares in verse 13, that the sea gave up the dead who were in it. So even the unsaved who have died at sea, whose bodies have never been recovered, they're not exempt from this judgment. Everyone will stand before him that has rejected him. Now I think that it's very, very important for us to realize that no one will ever end up in hell because of our sins. No one will ever end up in the eternal lake of fire because we are sinners. I mean, everybody's a sinner and everybody doesn't end up in the eternal lake of, of fire. The reason that people end up in eternal judgment is because of a failure to do the one great thing that brings forgiveness for my sins. And that is to trust in Christ as my Savior. Jesus declared, and he said, as, uh, as somebody came to him and said, What shall we do that we may do the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. That's how a person gets into heaven, by trusting in Christ. It's not my sin that lands me, the, the individual sins that lands me in, in judgment, if it were to be true of me, uh, and it won't be. It is a lifelong rejection of Jesus as my personal Savior and as my Lord. That is the only unforgivable sin in all of the universe. Let me read to you how heaven views that sin, to reject the Savior, the Son, Son of God sent. Hebrews chapter 10, 
For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? Jesus said this, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word which I have spoken will judge him in that day. Here's the great problem that anyone that rejects Jesus as Savior and as Lord faces. The great problem that, if if you're in that place tonight, the great problem that you face is this. You must find something wrong with Him. You must find a reason for rejecting Him. Rejecting His life, rejecting His truth, and His teaching. That's what you must find in his life. Can't look at the rest of the church or Christians that you've seen that have been poor witnesses. Any of those things. That's not the basis upon which we get into heaven or the basis upon which we accept or reject Christ. He's the faithful and true witness, the Bible says. I must find reason in him to reject him as being my Savior and as my Lord. Now that is an exercise in frustration because it's impossible. Uh, And one of my favorite passages in all of the Gospels, Jesus is standing before a group of religious leaders who have rejected him. And he looks at them and he poses a simple question to them. He said, which of you convicts me of sin? They'd been watching his life for three and a half years. They'd been listening to his teaching for three and a half years. He said, which of you can bring one single charge of one single sin against me? Which of you convicts me of sin? And what follows is pure silence. Here are these religious leaders who would have given everything they owned to be able to throw the smallest sin up in his face. And there is just pure silence. A silence that only Jesus could break. And he broke it with a second question. And he said, Why then won't you believe in me? And and that's that unless a person is ready with a ready answer to those two questions, no one will want to stand before him on this white throne and have their eternity at stake related to uh, all of of that. Notice in verse 13 that Hades, death and Hades are uh, delivered up, uh, uh, delivered up the dead who were in them. It's interesting that in, in verse 14 we're told that death is then uh, cast into the lake of fire. Why would God throw death into the lake of fire? Because what he does in doing that, in other words, death will not be able to deliver anyone from this eternal judgment. Death now becomes an impossibility uh, for, for anyone. Now again, notice in, in uh, verse 13, and they were judged, each one according to his 
works. Hell is very, very real. The eternal lake of fire is a very real place. It is an indescribably terrible place. People joke about it. And uh, how I'm going to party there and, you know, surf all the the waves and everything and, and uh, of the flames in hell and all of my friends will be there and all the good music will be there and all of those kinds of, of things. The eternal lake of fire is going to be a place that is completely devoid of anything that God in his nature brings to an environment. It will be pure, tasted, in your mouth thick is so you could cut it evil in that environment just pure pure evil absent of anything that is good anything that is of God even the wicked in this world today are able to break out of wickedness for five minutes or five days or whatever into light, into the blessings of God, recover on some level and then replunge. In hell, there is no respite. There's no break from it. I remember several times through the years um, seeing a bumper sticker, license plate holder that Read something like this. Heaven won't have me and hell's afraid that I'll take over. (laughs) That's pure nonsense. That's pure nonsense. And that tough talk will be silenced within five seconds of entering into that judgment. Every single one of us in this room and in this world has a breaking point. Every one of us does. We can be broken. You don't think if you or I were taken captive by the terrorists or the terrorists taken captive by uh, the uh, Israelis or being taken captive by any kind of uh, military force in the world that they couldn't break you and I in very, very short order. Everyone can be broken. Everyone has a breaking point. Imagine being cast into the eternal lake of fire and hitting your breaking point within two seconds I mean you're just undone that quickly it crushes us in a moment there's no pride there's no swaggering there's no tough talk there is only wailing and gnashing of teeth from two seconds on through all of eternity it's a terrible place it's a real place if you're not born again by the Holy Spirit if you have never trusted in Christ as your Savior then you need to do that so that your name can be found in the book of life so that when you die you'll go to heaven and you will not spend eternity in this other place one of the most wonderful things as it relates to talking about hell or talking about the eternal lake of fire is to realize that it is completely avoidable it is completely avoidable the white throne judgment and eternal judgment is the most avoidable thing in life it is more avoidable than taxes it is more avoidable than illness or aging 
It is more avoidable than allergies or even the common cold. All of these things are things that we can't avoid, but everyone can avoid judgment for their sins. How? By simple faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And then our life, our name, is written in the book of life. And it's just that simple. For God so loved the world, Jesus said, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe or trust in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I hope everyone who hears me will believe in that name, believe in that Savior, so that this horror isn't a part of, of any of our futures. God doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want anyone to be in this place. I don't want you to be in that place. We don't want you to be in that place. You don't want to be in that place. There's no need to be in that place. But because it is the most avoidable thing in, in life, we cannot charge God with unfairness when Jesus casts people into that judgment because such a great escape has been provided at such great expense to himself. No man that stands or woman that stands before that great white throne is, is uh, innocent or, or is innocent of their responsibility for standing before that great white throne. No person that stands there is a victim at all in this judgment. A person stands there because of a conscious decision that they have made about their eternity to reject the Savior that God has provided, and then God simply honors the decision that we have made. God gives us the freedom to choose His Son or reject His Son, and then He honors the choice that we make. So often a person will say, how can a God of love, you know, send someone to hell? He doesn't send anyone there. God isn't willing that any would perish, but all that would come to repentance. But he gives each one of us the freedom to choose, and then he simply confirms the reservations that we have made once we enter into eternity. One of the interesting things about hell is, is to realize that God never intended a single human being to ever be there. It was created for Satan and for the fallen angels, not for man. But if man will join the devil and join the fallen angels in their rebellion against God, there's only one destination for that rebellion, and, and that is in this place. And so then that will become man's eternal portion too, if they choose to follow the devil. I beg you, if you don't know the Lord tonight, that you come to know him tonight. This is real. It is the future of the world, heaven and hell. It is the future of eternity. You know one of the great things about teaching it, finding it in this book and then teaching it from this book is uh, no preacher gets the weasel out of it. You know why? Because at the end of this book, there's the warning that if anyone takes away from this book and what it teaches, God will take that person's name out of the book of life. And if anyone adds to anything that is found in this book, then God will add the plagues of this book to their life. 
So I like to be real squeaky clean as we go through the book of, of Revelation on this. Just deliver the message, leave it with the Holy Spirit, and trust Him to draw us uh, to Him. Then in verse 14, death and hell are cast into the lake of fire, and all of this, we're told, constitutes the second death. There's an old saying, uh, born once, die twice, born twice, die once. If a person is born once, only a physical birth, they never experience the spiritual birth that Jesus talks about being born again uh, with in John chapter 3. If I'm only born physically, I'll die twice. I'll die physically and then spiritually for eternity. But if a person is born twice, they'll only die once. In other words, I'm born uh, physically into the world, born again by the Holy Spirit, then the only death I will ever face is a physical death. I will never face an eternal death, and I'm kind of hoping for the rapture, frankly, too, so we can escape and, and uh, become the exception even uh, to, to that saying. Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To Nicodemus, he said, don't marvel that I tell you, you must be born again. By trusting in Jesus, God's Holy Spirit coming into my life, I now have uh, born again by the Spirit the capacity for relationship with God. And anyone not found written, verse 15, in the book of life, that is completely personal responsibility, was cast into the lake of fire. And that judgment is eternal. It is final. There are no appeals. It's very, very heavy. God isn't kidding about any uh, of this. Our physical death is not the end of our existence. And that's why it's serious tonight that every single one of us be on our way to heaven. Notice then in chapter 21 that... Um, John sees something new following this white throne judgment. He said, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and also there was no sea. So John now uh, sees the new heaven and the, and the new earth because this physical earth, this physical heavens that we live in right now has passed uh, away. The new heaven and the new earth that he describes here is, uh, is a, 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 a heaven and, new heaven and earth that God's going to create. It's the future home of, of uh, the saint. This world that we live in right now, this isn't our home. We're strangers and pilgrims here. We're heading for eternity. We're heading for a new heaven, a new earth that God's going to create uh, for us at the end of, uh, of all of this. It's interesting that this new heaven and this new earth isn't going to be a renovation of the old. He's not going to renovate or fix up, patch up this fallen world that we live in right now. He's going to create a completely new one, one that's untouched by sin. It's unaffected by the fall. Jesus declared concerning this on all of that discourse, he said, Heaven and earth will pass away. It will pass away, he said, but my words will by no means pass away. When Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, I think it's in chapter 2, and he wrote of the fact that uh, by him, by Jesus, all things consist. Jesus holds the whole world together right now. Every atom, every uh, subatomic particle, all of this, your bodies are held together. Every, all matter is held together by His power and by His Word. But there is a day coming when Jesus is going to simply, by whatever means, release whatever it is that He is doing to hold all of that together. 
And all of this creation that is all around us is going to simply go out with a big bang. Uh, Man has it exactly opposite. We didn't begin with a new bang. We will end with a big bang. And uh, this thing is just going to melt with a fervent heat, as as Peter said in 2 Peter. It's going to be destroyed, and then God is going to create a new heaven and, and a new earth. And, and, and so that's what's in our future. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not to have a concern for the earth and the world and the redwood forests and this and that and, and, and all. But you don't have to pick up a newspaper uh, as a Christian and uh, look at you know, some failing aspect of the world or whatever and, and, and worry about this world has to last forever. It doesn't have to last forever. Second law of thermodynamics. It's about as scientific as I get. But this thing is all winding down. It doesn't have to last forever. God's going to bring it to an end. He's going to create a new heaven. And He's going to create a a new earth. Now notice He tells us here in verse 1, and this can be kind of depressing for some people, that this new heaven, at this new heaven and new earth, there's not going to be a sea anymore. So the Holy Spirit doesn't give us a lot of information about this new heaven or this new earth. But one of the things that he's careful to tell us is there isn't going to be a sea on the, on the new earth. So no seashores, no sea, no beachfront property. The whole world's going to be like Modesto. <laughs> we win. We convert them all before this is all done. So there's no more uh, sea. Now, it, it's, uh, that is interesting to us because we know that uh, 73-75% of the earth's surface today is sea. It's water. But the new earth is going to be something entirely different. There aren't going to be seas on it. We don't know what, what it's going to be or what it's going to look like. Uh, that, this can be terrible news for surfers or deep sea fishermen or people like that. But whatever it's going to be, it's going to be a lot better than what it is uh, right now. And then John noticed in verse 2, he said, I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And so John's attention is now drawn to a specific uh, feature of the new heaven and the new earth, and that is the new Jerusalem. And it's just coming down just like kind of a satellite. It's coming down to the earth. We don't really know. Some people believe that it comes all the way down to the new earth, and it kind of plops on it, you know, and it's, it becomes a fixture on the earth, or that it comes and it kind of orbits the earth, but there's still some mechanism to travel between the two, because as we'll see uh, later in the chapter, there is uh, movement between the earth and, and the new Jerusalem uh, in, in eternity. He describes it here in verse 2 as a bride adorned for her husband. Uh, now, in ancient times, a bride was a symbol of purity. Uh, in the ancient Jewish culture, a bride was the picture of purity, much less immoral kind of, of culture in, in those days. So what this would produce is John's trying to figure out how to describe uh, this, this new Jerusalem. The, the closest thing that he can come to in his culture is, is a bride. It's, it's pure, it's, uh, it's refreshing, it's beautiful, it's, it's exciting. All the things that a bride is on, on, uh, on her wedding day. And, 
and, and when you think about something that's, that's just pure beauty in life, uh, a bride on her wedding day is one of them. All of the excitement that she has, all of the, the beauty that just radiates from her. I'll never forget when Karen came down the aisle to me in uh, Napa, California. What a, I had to pinch myself. Mm, trapped her. And, uh, but anyway, uh, we'll uh, steer clear of, of that. One of the interesting things, too, about uh, brides and, and weddings is most, most of the time when I'll officiate at a wedding, I realize I'm dealing with two very exhausted people. And uh, they, go, they go on their honeymoon to recover, you know, from weeks of getting this together. The last 72 hours are, are pr- preparations and getting this situated and all so that everything will be perfect. New Jerusalem would be perfect. New Jerusalem is going to be is beautiful and, and just right. He noticed that um, he refers to it as a holy city. And what he's doing is he's contrasting this with the old Jerusalem. Now, I love to go to Jerusalem. And I love to look around Jerusalem. And I, I love being there and all of that. But Jerusalem is a fallen place. Jerusalem, earlier in the book of Revelation, God calls it Sodom because of what it becomes, spiritually speaking, because of what it becomes during the Great Tribulation. The center, I mean, here it is, this worship in, in, the, in the temple and the dishonoring of, of Jesus and all. And never forget, as much as we love uh, the city of Jerusalem and all, it was the site of the single greatest crime in the history of the world, the murder of the Messiah where the creation crucified the Creator who is blessed forevermore that Jerusalem is not going to move, go on into eternity neither is this fallen world there will be a new Jerusalem uh, in, in eternity and then he says in verse 3 I heard a loud voice from heaven saying behold the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people God himself will be with them and be their God and this speaks of the intimacy of the relationship that we'll have with God in eternity we're going to have a relationship no, no longer through a glass darkly but then we'll see him face to face there won't be any praying prayers to him by faith or trying to, you know, like Brother Andrew wrote the book, you know, practicing the presence of God and all, and we have to remind ourselves of the presence of God here and all of this. There'll be none of that in eternity. We, we, will, we will be in relationship with him face to face. No prayer in its current form. Uh, we'll always be conscious of his presence. It'll be obvious to us in, in, in uh, eternity, the intimacy of it. And then notice, God will wipe away every tear and uh, from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. All of these things the pain, the sorrow, the death, the crying, the tears, all of those things, all of them introduced into the human condition through sin. Through sin. God never intended those things to be a part of human history. And one day, they're going to go by the wayside. No more death, good riddance. No more funerals, no more heartbreak. No more trying to process it and, and with a body and a mind and a heart and, and all that, that was never created to process death. We're never intended to encounter death. 
No sorrow, good riddance to sorrow, no crying in heaven, no more pain. Can you imagine? No more pain. And then he tells us, no more tears. God's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. You ever had somebody wipe a tear from your eye? It's one of the most tender acts in, in human experience to have a tear wiped away from your eye by another person. Jesus is going to do that related to our lives. It's in our future. There will be no regret going into eternity, remembering what we were or what we weren't or who's saved, who isn't saved, and and all of that, that whole history is just going to go. He's going to wipe away our tears. That's it. And then we move on in, into eternity. No more, no more. It's repeated wonderfully in, in verse 4. Because a part of what makes heaven heaven is what will no longer be a part of the human experience because of, of sin. And then God declares, uh, 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 verse 5, And he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And then the Lord who sat on the throne says to John, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Apparently, uh, John, as he sees the new heaven, the new earth, the eternity, the beauty of it, as he's hearing what is being said there in heaven, he just kind of stops writing. And he's up there to record. And he's just kind of, all right, that's it, I'm done. I, can we take a break here? i got to get a macchiato or something here. I think. But he, so he's, he stopped writing. And God says, uh, John, go ahead and keep writing, buddy. All right, we've got this revelation going. He says, you write it because all that you're seeing and I'm telling you is faithful and true and then he said to me it is done in other words everything that I've described God says to John it's it is done it is as good as done it is in the future of of my saints why because I am alpha and the I am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end and when God speaks and makes a promise that's a done deal because he will always keep his promises. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Now the fountain of the water of life refers to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, as we uh, trust in Jesus as our Savior. You remember Jesus when he spoke with a woman at the well in John chapter 4. He said as she's drinking this regular water and pulling it up out of the well. She, he said to her uh, that whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. John chapter 7 Jesus, in his ministry, he stood up at the time of the great Feast of Tabernacles in the city of Jerusalem, and he cried out to the multitude that was there, hundreds of thousands of Jewish pilgrims. And he said to them, If any man thirsts, let him come unto me. And he who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart or his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And this he spoke, we're told, concerning the Spirit. In other words, God is declaring that this future, this new heaven, this new earth, His salvation, it is freely available to every person who wants it. 
He's still throwing the nets out to us here. And, and, and to come and, and to know him is, is, is through history. People have read this book and they're wondering, wow, this is the future. Can I have a place in it? And he gives the promise, I'll give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Are you thirsty spiritually tonight? And he'll satisfy that thirst. Uh, my oldest daughter uh, had we were talking driving somewhere and we were talking and um, she had read an article on uh, uh, online and uh, it was so sad I said could you print it out for me and uh, the article was about the monasteries in Europe and how the uh, some of the young people in Europe are fleeing to the monasteries It's the only safe place they can find from the wickedness and the sin and the perversion that is around them. Everything is legal. There's no stigma associated with any of it. But just because the cultures lift the stigma off of sin, it doesn't mean that the consequences that are behind the sin are are still not incurred by the people. And imagine being a person here where you don't even believe in the religion of the monastery, but just to find a place of refuge that has some semblance of purity, a break from the wickedness of, of, of the world. Here they are going to these places. I mean, that's, that's quite, that's saying a lot. And the casualties that, that sin produces. And people have a spiritual thirst, and God knows they do. And this is where it will be satisfied. Not in a monastery, necessarily. But every place can become a pure place. Our homes can become a pure place. Our hearts can become a pure place. As God's Holy Spirit comes uh, into, into our, our lives. And then notice in verse 7, he said, And he who overcomes, how do you overcome? By trusting in Christ, shall inherit all things. This new heaven, this new earth, this new Jerusalem, this new future, the no tears, all of these things, all of that is, 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 uh, is ours, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And so here God lists the characteristics of those who will not have an eternal place in heaven, but their eternal portion will be the lake of fire. So it is interesting to realize that the new heaven and the new earth will not affect the existence of Gehenna. Somehow it is able to exist in in the new heaven and the new earth. It will not cease to exist. But this kind of person is not going to find themselves uh, in heaven. Their lives characterized uh, by sin. And they cannot be in heaven because they would ruin heaven. And so, and they wouldn't be happy there anyway because if in this life I am willing to get, unwilling to give up these sins to get into heaven, then I'm going to be unhappy in heaven because these sins are not going to be committed in, in heaven. Isn't it funny how 
you can talk to a person who doesn't believe in heaven and hell. They don't believe in God. They don't believe in an afterlife. They don't believe in any of those things. But then you tell them that their sin is going to land them in hell, and they get all upset. If you don't believe in any of it, then why would you get upset? There is a sense that there is an eternity out there. That my sin is deserving of judgment. They don't want to go to heaven. They don't want anything to do with it. They don't want anything to do with God. Anything, any of that kind of thing. But they don't want to be told they're not going to be there. And God tells us this kind of person is not going to be there. Now let's be very, very careful here. It is not that these sins, those of you who are wondering if we'll go on, we won't. We'll stop here so you can relax. We'll have communion before 9 o'clock. But this is very, very important for people to understand. It is not these sins that land a person in hell. Again, there's only one unforgivable sin, and that is a lifelong rejection of Jesus Christ as my personal Savior and as my Lord When these sins, the Bible teaches, when these sins characterize a person's life as just a deliberate, willful decision, this is how they want to live, this is how they want to spend uh, their life. I'm not talking about Christians who are struggling against sin in their Christian life. We're talking about a person who is willfully, deliberately says, this is the life that I want to live, and I reject God in order to live this kind of, of life. What that does is it reveals this. This kind of person has never committed themselves to Christ, no matter how much that they say that, that, that they have. These things are an evidence when they are lifestyle sins of a life that is not yet under the control of the Holy Spirit, hasn't been born again yet. Jesus put it this way, Matthew chapter 7. He said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name. Tremendously uh, religiously active people. And Jesus said, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you who, and here's the key word, practice. Make a lifestyle willingly of lawlessness. Luke chapter 6, Jesus declared there, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? So the upside in terms of verse 8 is that none of that sin will be introduced into heaven or a single person who wants to partake of those sins. Heaven will be a holy place. It will be a pure place. No temptation, nothing to distract us in our relationship with him and our service uh, to him. Well, we'll stop there tonight and we'll pick it up in uh, verse 9 for next week and we will look to finish it uh, next week and we will finish it 
uh, next week unless I collapse in some kind of a seizure or something like that. So uh, you, can, you can know that uh, we'll do that. I knew I wouldn't get much further than this uh, uh, tonight. But just so uh, you know, we'll look to finish up the Bible next week. With